0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm flying solo for today's pod, but I will have two parts for you in part one. I'll give you my thoughts on our Champions League Round of 16 victory over Eintracht Frankfurt and in part two I will quickly preview our match against Torino on Sunday I suspect most of you won't get a chance to hear this until after that match because I was very very late in getting that posted so hopefully you can use this preview to assess Napoli's performance in the match so let's get right into it as I'm sure you're aware by now Napoli beat Eintracht Frankfurt at home 3-0 on a brace from Victor Osiman and a penalty kick from Piotr Zelensky. There's so much to talk about from this match, both on and off the pitch, but I'm going to start with the football and then I will give you my thoughts on the draw and on the riots before the match. So let's start with the first half, which was not terrible, but it was far from our best half of the season. I think Oliver Glasner caught us all a little bit off guard by switching to a back four. He has used a 4-2-3-1 four or five times this season, but it was early in the Bundesliga season, and it wasn't particularly effective. Around the middle of September, he reverted back to a 3-4-2-1, and then other than one match where he tested a 4-4-2, he hasn't really deviated since. I thought Frankfurt pressed really well in the first half, and we looked a half step slower than we normally are. I'm not quite sure if we looked slower because Frankfurt pressed so well or if Frankfurt's press was so effective because we were playing slower. Either way, the early stages of the first half were a little bit tense. Had we conceded a goal in the first half, then things might have gotten a little bit testy. In truth, though Frankfurt did a good job of slowing down our attack, they never really threatened our goal. We still defended very well. I thought Mario Rui had an excellent match after missing two league games for the red card he got against Empoli. Di Lorenzo, Rachmani, and Kim were all solid as ever. I'm not sure if Kim was fully fit, but he didn't show any signs that his calf was bothering him. Frankfurt's XG for this match was 1.3. I don't have the split between the first half and the second half, but I'd venture to guess that the majority of that 1.3 was in the second half. Frankfurt had a couple of decent chances around the hour mark but I don't recall the Germans creating any meaningful chances in the first half. The best chance I can think of was around the half-hour mark when Kamada played the ball through to Goza and Bore, but neither of them went for the ball, and in the end, Meretta got to it first. I suspect Bore knew that he was offside, so he let it go for Goza, but he should have also stopped his run. By continuing the run, I think he just threw Goza off on that play. Now, even with Frankfurt slowing down our attack... We still had our chances in the first half. Politano came close to opening the scoring only a minute in, but Trapp made a fine save. Osiman had a low shot stopped as well, and Cavada had two really good chances that he failed to convert. The one consistent with almost all of our chances in the half was Piotr Zielinski. On the Osiman chance, Zilu and Cavada had a lovely exchange in a really tight space before Cavada slipped the ball through to Osiman in the area. Kavada's first chance, which was around the 20th minute, started with Zelinski making a gorgeous slide tackle and Jabril Sao in the middle of the park. He also set up Kavada's second chance near the end of the half. He made a really clever turn to get out of a tight space on the left side of the midfield. He then carried the ball to the edge of the area before playing it through to Kavada, but the Georgian wasn't able to lift the ball over Trap. Had Osiman not scored that unbelievable goal, which I will get to in a second, then I think Zelinski would have won the Man of the Match award. But of course, Osiman did score that goal, and what a ridiculous goal it was. There are very few players in the world who have the size and athleticism to score a goal like that. Now, admittedly, I don't watch a whole lot of football outside of Serie A and European club competitions, but the only other player that I can think of is Erling Haaland. Just imagine being a defender in that situation where you're asked to mark a six-foot-one striker, and then he jumps 3 feet in the air, it was hard enough to get ahead on that ball, let alone to place it perfectly into the top corner like Osimhen did there. The other thing that was really impressive about that header was the amount of power that Victor generated on the ball, because the cross did not have any pace on it. Credit to Politano for the accuracy of the cross, with his weaker right foot no less, but he chipped the ball into the area, which means Victor had to generate all the power. If anyone saw the snapshot of the reverse angle, Gisa's facial expression watching this play unfold perfectly summed up how impressive it really was. Stanislav Lobotka also deserves a shout-out. He forced Frankfurt to turn the ball over with his high press, and then he played a gorgeous ball to Politano with the outside of his right boot now this was a really devastating goal for frankfurt both within the context of the match and within the context of the tie of course this goal gave napoli a 3-0 lead on aggregate which meant that frankfurt would have to score three goals in the second half at the maradona just to force extra time just to contextualize how difficult of a feat that was in 35 matches this season Napoli have not conceded more than two goals even a single time. And then, to concede that goal in the second minute of stoppage time would have been completely demoralizing. Funny enough, moments before the goal, Tony Jones and Clive Allen, who called the match in English on the world feed, were talking about how Frankfurt should actually feel pretty good about themselves heading into the break without conceding a goal. Now, if that goal didn't end the tie then Osimen, second in the 53rd minute certainly did. I was listening to another podcast, I think it was the Stadio podcast, and they were talking about Erling Haaland's 5-goal performance against RB Leipzig, and at one point they were talking about this frankly ridiculous notion that Haaland is a tap-in merchant, and one of the things they said about Haaland that I think is equally true of Osimen is that it's no coincidence that they always seem to be in the right place at the right time. That is an indication of a high football IQ. We often talk about defenders' ability to read the play, but strikers read the play as well. Osimhen saw Di Lorenzo making the underlap, and he instinctively knew that that ball is going to be played across the face of the goal, so he made the run, but he also had to time the run to avoid getting ahead of the ball and being offside. So what appeared to be a simple tap-in in the end was actually another brilliant play from OC Men. Now as always, a few other players deserve a shout out on this goal as well. First, Politano and Di Lorenzo were really clicking in this match. Last pod we talked about how Politano seems to need extra motivation to play well. This was his second strong performance in a row, and at least partly as a result of that, he was called up to the Italian national team for Euro qualifiers. Politano and Di Lorenzo tried the overlap earlier in the sequence and Kamada cleared the danger, but Cavada played a lovely ball right back to that side, and they simply tried it again except with the underlap rather than with the overlap. I mentioned Oseman's read of the game, Di Lorenzo also knew that if he plays that ball, Victor is going to make the run. The quality of the ball was excellent though considering that he played it first time and he played it on the turn. Time and time again, Di Lorenzo shows his quality at both ends of the pitch. Of course, he scored in the first leg. He's also been called up to the Azzurri, and it's not surprising that Mancini uses him as a wing back because even though he plays with us in a back four, that is effectively the role he plays for Napoli. Finally, Lobotka deserves a shout-out again for his press. He was the player that intercepted Kamada's clearance just outside the Frankfurt area. Now, granted, it wasn't a great clearance by Kamada, but that's partly because Napoli collectively kept the pressure high up the park and forced that mistake. Now, we did have a momentary scare immediately after the goal. Tuta appeared to step on Osimhen's right wrist, but fortunately, he was able to play on, and judging from the lack of reports... It does not appear to be a serious injury. One last comment on Men before I move on to a few other subjects. He gave an interview to friend of the pod Patrick Hendrick at field level after the match. Patrick was working as a reporter for BT Sport on this one and the subject of the penalty kick came up and I thought Men's response was once again confirmation of how much he's matured in such a short period of time and how far he has come as a leader. He said that Zielinski asked him if he could take the penalty, probably because Zilu knew that it was a chance for Osiman to complete a Champions League hat-trick, which is not something a lot of players have an opportunity to do, and obviously Victor allowed Zielinski to take it, and he said in the interview that he is a team player, it doesn't matter who scores as long as the team succeeds, he said he knows the goals will come with or without penalty kicks, and it's good to have this kind of mentality for the squad. Spalletti commented on the penalty kick after the match as well. This is a subject that's come up a few times, and to Spalletti's credit, he's been fairly consistent on it. Last time the subject came up, he said the players decide who shoot the first penalty, and he decides the second. After this match, he said the locker room is democratic, and the players decide who should take the penalty based on who feels most up for it. Zielinski converted the penalty to top off what was a very strong performance for him, 123 days had passed between his last goal, which was against Udinese back in November, and this one. Now, not that he's been playing poorly or anything, he still contributes in so many other ways, but sometimes all it takes is a lucky goal, or indeed a penalty kick, to restore a player's goal-scoring confidence. That goal was scored in the 64th minute, and two minutes later, Spalletti made his first changes, replacing Politano with Lozano and Kim with Juan Jesus. I've been critical of Spalletti for waiting too long to make changes, so I was happy to see Kim come off so soon, given the calf injury he sustained against Atalanta. I'll talk more about it in part 2, but I suspect Kim will not start against Torino either. Osimhen was not replaced until the 81st minute, but being on a hat-trick, I don't blame Spalletti for leaving him out there a little bit longer, especially after passing up that penalty kick. Okay, the last comment I have on the -the on-the-field performance is something that never fails to impress me, and it certainly impressed Tony Jones and Clive Allen, and that is the effort we saw from our team even after they went up 5-0 on aggregate. The two commentators mentioned it around the 71st minute when Zielinski, Lobotka, and Mario Rui all pressed on the Napoli left wing to win the ball back despite a 5-goal advantage. There was another moment where Angisa was just sprinting back and forth, chasing the ball, trying to win it back again, up 5-0 on aggregate. So this was a very well-deserved victory. Napoli played their way into the club's first ever Champions League quarterfinal, and perhaps unlike the other two Italian teams, no one can say that we don't deserve to be there. The draw was done on Friday, and you have to say, it was just about as good as you can ask for if you're a Napoli fan. We avoided Bayern Munich, we avoided Manchester City, and we avoided Real Madrid, who were considered the three favorites to win the tournament for obvious reasons. We drew Milan, who's certainly a very beatable team, and if we advance, we play against the winner of Inter and Benfica. My money's on Benfica in that match, but either way there is a very realistic possibility that we could be playing in the final of the Champions League in Istanbul. The only concern I have with a team like Milan is they know us quite well being a domestic rival. Also, I've mentioned this before, but we tend to do well in the Champions League because most opponents play open, which leaves space on the pitch for us to attack. Milan and Inter, for that matter, do exactly the opposite, they will try to suffocate their opponent and we saw how well both of them played against us this season and said yeah, we beat Milan at the San Siro but they were the better team on that day and of course Inter is one of the two teams who beat us in the league this season. But at the end of the day, I maintain what I said to Lorenzo last episode, if I had to pick my quarterfinal opponent, it would probably be one of the Italian teams because they are two of the weakest sides remaining, perhaps along with Chelsea. They're both battling for qualification to next year's Champions League as well, so I think that can really work in our favor. Spalletti has been reluctant to rotate so far because he wants to win the league as quickly as possible, but the first leg is not until April 12th. We may not have mathematically won the league by that point, but if we still have a 15-point lead or better by that point, Then I do think Spalletti will start to rotate his squad more. Some people have mentioned the possibility of having a 100 point season. I would care more about that if we were not competing in multiple competitions but we are so winning the league and going as far as we possibly can in Europe are easily our biggest priorities. Okay the last thing I want to quickly address is the violence we saw at the Piazza del Gesù in the build-up to the match If you're looking for a bit of context on how we got to that level of tension, head over to fortzanapolipress.com. I wrote a piece that explains the whole thing, which was really well received. But in short, the Interior Ministry, which is a part of the federal government, and then the local representatives of the Interior Ministry banned Frankfurt fans from attending the match over safety concerns. Hundreds of Frankfurt fans still poured into the city via Salerno, and they were accompanied by Atalanta fans, who they have a gemellaggio with or a twinning with for a while it seemed like they were just going to be a nuisance walking around the streets in a big group doing chants maybe trying to instigate violence but not quite initiating anything in fact in the early stages it looked like the napoli fans were going to be the biggest problem we saw them throwing stuff at the visitors buses when they arrived and so on and then things got very out of hand they got very violent Frankly, it's a miracle that no one lost their life. A police car was set on fire. A lot of innocent shop owners had their property destroyed. And I think people like Frankfurt board member Philip Resky and UEFA president Alexander Seferin need to have a long, hard look at themselves in the mirror because they were both very critical of Napoli's decision to ban the away supporters from attending the match. Now, a few people have defended this behavior, Because there is an argument that this would have never happened if the Frankfurt bans were not banned in the first place. I'm not so sure I buy that story. The Interior Ministry was acting on intel that they had that suggested otherwise. And it's their job to provide safety and to protect public order. That brings me on nicely to Napoli's accountability in this whole thing. Because clearly the Interior Ministry failed to protect public order. That may sound a little bit harsh, but even with the travel ban, this should have never happened. We knew that Frankfurt had rejected their 2,700 seat ticket allotment, so we knew that all these fans were only in town for one reason, and that was to cause problems. Now, I saw a lot of people reporting that they've never seen that many police officers in the city before, so that's something, but clearly it wasn't enough. When I watched the videos of the rioting, where the car was set on fire it looked like we had about 20 officers in the area. They were never going to be able to stop what ultimately ended up happening. So the authorities all need to have a long, hard look at themselves as well, but I highly doubt that will happen. In the days after the match, there was a meeting between De Laurentiis, Claudio Palomba, the prefect of Naples, so he's the local representative of the interior ministry, Mayor Gaetano Manfredi, and a few others, and I didn't get the impression that they are going to do a whole lot about it. It felt like they were more congratulating the forces for doing what they did, which they do need to be congratulated, but they were kind of passing the buck to UEFA and Frankfurt and everybody else. So that will do for part one. In part two, I will quickly preview our match on Sunday against Torino. Welcome to part 2 of the Fort Zanapoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Pod. It's entirely voluntary, there are no set tiers, but it does help me to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortzinapolipress.com. In fact, the reason I'm getting this pod out so late is because I spent a lot of time working on a piece on the website about the quartieri spagnoli i did quite a bit of research on the art history and culture of that particular part of napoli so i recommend you head over there and check that out thank you to everyone who has already read it the feedback has been very positive so far okay so let's quickly talk about torino Ivan urich's side come into this match having had a very even like season so far They're currently 9th in the table with a record of 10 wins, 7 draws, and 9 losses, which is good enough for 37 points. They have a goal differential of 0 with 29 goals scored and 29 goals conceded. Only 6 teams in the league have scored fewer goals than Torino, and only 4 teams in the league have conceded fewer goals than Torino, which again is typical of an Ivan Juric side. Heading into this round, they were actually 8th in the table, but Udinese moved ahead of them with their victory over Milan on Saturday. Now, Torino are coming off back-to-back victories in the league, which is only the second time they've done that all season. A win here would be their first string of three wins all season, so consistency has been a bit of an issue for them. That's largely because they don't have the deepest squad This was a concern that Diego Fornero raised when we spoke to him ahead of the match against Torino in the Girona Andata, and they didn't do a whole lot to reinforce the squad in January. Torino have also suffered a spat of injuries recently, so that makes these two victories even more impressive, but it also helps to explain some of the inconsistency. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Juric will line up in a 3-4-2-1 formation. He's very rigid about that. So as Spalletti said in his pre-match Conferenza Stampa, he won't change his appearance like Eintracht Frankfurt did. Vanya Milinkovic-Savic will likely start in goal. Juric has one question mark at the back. He mentioned that Kofi Gigi has a little problem, but I'm still expecting him to play in that back three alongside Per Schürz and Alessandro Bongiorno. If Gigi is not fit to play... Then Ricardo Rodriguez will drop into the back three otherwise we should see Rodriguez line up on the left side of the midfield four Ronaldo Vieira has a bruised knee so Carol and Ivan Illich should feature in the center of the midfield with Wilfried Sango playing on the right Valentino Lazaro has a knee injury as well so if Rodriguez has to play at the back then I suspect we'll see Ola Aina come in to play as the other wing back the attack is where Juric has the biggest concern. He'll be playing without his two preferred attacking midfielders. Alexei Miranchuk has a thigh injury and Jan Karamo has a calf problem. That means we'll see Nikola Vlasic and Nemanja Radonjic playing behind striker Antonio Sanabria. For Napoli, once again, I'm not expecting a whole lot of change from Luciano Spalletti. We'll be playing on short rest, but he also knows that this is the final match before the international break, although we've had 16 players called up for international duty, so other than Alex Meret, I'm not sure how many of them will get much rest. Meret will start in goal with Napoli lined up in our usual 4-3-3 formation. I am expecting one change at the back compared to the back four we fielded against Eintracht Frankfurt, I think we'll see Juan Jesus start over Kim Min-jae in the center-back pairing. The fact that Spalletti removed Kim in the 66th minute on Wednesday suggests to me that he has not fully recovered from that calf injury he suffered against Atalanta. Kim's also one yellow card away from a suspension, so to me it makes sense to rest him here so that he is in top shape for our first match after the international break, which is against Milan. Now Kim is one of the players that was called up for international duty with South Korea so I really hope they don't play him and aggravate that injury because he is so important to us especially in the Champions League. Though we could see Matthias Olivetta start at left back I'm expecting Mario Rui to be rewarded for his performance on Wednesday although Oliveira might be better suited to stop Sango on that Torino right wing. And then, of course, Giovanni Di Lorenzo and Amir Rachmani will complete the back four. I'm also not expecting any changes to the midfield. I think we'll see our usual trio of Piotr Zelensky, Stanislav Lobotka, and Andre Frank Zombo and Gisa there. Now, there have been rumors that we could see Elif Elmas in the starting eleven, but I just don't see where he would play. The player he is most likely to substitute is Zelensky, but Zelensky played so well against Frankfurt that that I would expect Spalletti to roll with him. Perhaps Elmas could give Cavada a rest on the left wing, but Cavada's young and he came off in the 74th minute against Frankfurt, so I'm expecting him to start as well. On the opposite wing, I think we will see Chucky Lozano come back into the starting 11 after two strong performances from Matteo Politano. A part of me wonders if Spalletti started Politano for those matches because he knew that the winger would be extra hungry in order to get into the national team squad, which he did. Finally, I think we'll see Victor Osiman start up top. Now, like him, Osiman is one yellow card away from a suspension, so with Milan on deck, it is possible that Giovanni Simeone gets the start. I'm not expecting that though, Osiman is one goal away from 20. And if Spalletti was so concerned about the possibility of suspension, then I don't think he would wait so long to take Oseman out of some of these matches. Even if Osiman does pick up a yellow card, it probably wouldn't be the end of the world if we had to play Simeone against Milan. After all, he did score the match winner against them in the first meeting this season. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is that we need to stay out of the official's book, I've already explained that Kim and Osimen are a booking away from suspension, so I won't spend too much time on this one. They're obviously two of our most important players, so we will need them for the Milan game, that doesn't mean we can't win without them, but I think it is a good opportunity for Spalletti to rotate, especially at the back. My second key to the match is we need to score two goals. I mentioned that Torino have the fifth best defensive record in the league. When they win, they tend to keep clean sheets, and when they don't keep clean sheets, they tend not to win. Their last five wins have all been clean sheets. Granted, they weren't exactly against the most difficult opponents in Lecce, Bologna, Udinese, Fiorentina, and Sampdoria. The last time they conceded a goal and still won the match was against Milan back on October 30th, when they won 2-1. They also beat Monza and Cremonese by the same scoreline very early in the season, but that's Monza and Cremonese. So I think even if we score one goal in this match, we're almost certain to take at least a point from it. Obviously, we want to win every match, but a draw away at Torino wouldn't be the worst result ever. And though Torino have earned two 2-2 draws this season, I think if we score twice, we're almost certainly guaranteed the victory. Those 2-2 two, two draws were against Empoli and Cremonese, who, with all due respect to those two teams, simply aren't as strong as we are. I don't think Torino have the firepower in attack, even without the injuries, to score twice against us, so I think they will be very happy to take a point away from this match. That brings me to my third key to the match, which is that we need to break the press Spalletti talked about this in his pre-match press conference as well. He said Torino have gotten to a point now where they actually enjoy making life difficult for their opponents. Juric's teams always play very aggressive, very tough football. You can expect them to commit a lot of fouls high up the park to disrupt our rhythm. If I was doing three keys to the match for Torino, I would still include the key to stay out of the official's book. They tend to toe the line as far as that goes, but if they do pick up a few bookings, then that will force Torino to play a little bit more cautiously, which will be advantageous for us. It's very important that we're not intimidated by that physical play. Anyone who's played the game knows that the best way to get hurt is to play scared. We need to take these guys head-on, and even if they foul us hard, we need to keep running at them. I think quick movement and creativity will be really important for us in this match, which is another reason to start Zielinski instead of Elmas in the midfield, even though Elmas is a very creative player. We saw against Frankfurt how well Zielinski and Cavada work together in tight spaces, and I think they will be two key players, along with Lobotka and Nguyssa, who will unlock the Torino press. Lobotka with his vision, and Angisa with his strength. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-0 Napoli victory on goals from the usual suspects, Victor Ossiman and Kovicja Kvaratskhelia. As I said, Ossiman is one goal shy of hitting the 20-goal plateau in the league, and we saw how angry he was with himself to not have scored against Atalanta. Kavada didn't score on Wednesday, but he came close on a couple of occasions. There were the two chances I mentioned in the first half, and then there was a really nice save by Trapp in the second half, so he will also be very hungry to score. History is certainly not on Torino's side for this match. They have only one win over Napoli in the last 10 and a half seasons. They've only drawn four matches during that stretch as well. So we've won 16 of the last 21 matches. We've also won four in a row. With a win, we could easily open up a 20 or 21 point lead over our nearest rival, assuming that Juventus don't get their points back, of course. Juve play Inter this round in the Derby d'Italia, and Milan already lost to Udinese, so even if Inter and Juve draw, as opposed to an Inter loss, the magic number would be down to 5. Okay, that is where I will leave it, I hope you enjoy the match, again, sorry it took me so long to get this pod posted. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to leave us a review and or give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I will be back next week to review this match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network.